stand with me in honor of God, please, as we read his word together, uh, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 9 of the book of Acts. It begins this way. Just talked about Philip and his ministry. Verse 1, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in the, at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. But when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. 
and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You may be seated. And Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning to you for your word that instructs us, and we are grateful for the story of conversion. Our hearts are warmed and excited as we think about the transforming work of of, of your gospel through the, the work of your spirit, hearing this, this truth, the, the transformative work that you work within us. And we pray that as we come face to face with your, your son, Jesus Christ, and his absolute authority, we would bow the head, that we would bend the knee before his authority and kingship. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I've shared the story, I think, a couple of times of, of some of the circumstances that brought Whitney and I from the Dallas area uh, here to central Illinois. We were serving in a church in Dallas. We had attended this church when I was in college, and then we got married and became full-time staff at, at this church. I was a youth pastor there and loved the church very much, loved the people there very much. The, the church, though, was part of something called the Free Grace Movement. And I didn't understand exactly what the free grace movement was when I was in college and kind of didn't quite understand everything that the church believed. At the, at the beginning, it was, it was really encouraging. I was excited about the things that this church was teaching. The, the church really emphasized that you are saved by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. So you believe in Jesus Christ and are saved. And that's, of course, that's the gospel. That's absolutely true. And it was a, a wonderful emphasis. And I, I appreciated that emphasis. You're saved by believing in Jesus Christ. But as, as we continued to, to be at this church, I began to understand a little bit more of some of the things that they believed and what, and what they meant when they said a person needed to only believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. I began to hear the, the pastor talked about how you, you don't need to repent in order to become a Christian. And I thought, well, that's, that doesn't seem to be what Scripture describes. And scripture describes repentance and belief as being kind of two sides of the same coin. You, you're, you're following your own path. You're, you're trusting your own righteousness, your own works to be saved. And then you, you turn from that to place your faith in Jesus. That's, that's repentance. You're, you're turning from your own righteousness and you're trusting in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. You're, you're believing in him and that, that, whole, that whole process goes together. God gives you the grace to turn from your own self-sufficiency and repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I kind of talked with the pastor about that and I realized, okay, I, I think what he's saying, I think what he's saying is you don't need to do works in order to be saved. And I, I agree with that. You don't have to get your life all in order before you become a Christian. You immediately turn to Christ. So I said, okay, I, I think... I disagree with the way you're saying this, but, but I, you know, I, I think we can work through this. I think it's okay. But then he, he continued to say some things that, that made, me, made me uncomfortable. He said, not only do you not need to repent, but believing in Jesus just means you, you just believe in the name Jesus. So in other words, you could be on a deserted island and a bottle could wash up on shore and you could take out a piece of paper and the paper could say, believe in Jesus. And even if you had never heard the name Jesus before, you didn't know anything about him, you could say, okay, I, I believe in Jesus and you could be saved. And I thought, whoa, 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 what? <laughs> I mean, Jesus isn't just a magic name. What, what are you talking about? And then, and then it got even more concerning. He said that and I realized, okay, this is not where I need to be long term. But then it kept on going. He said, well, not only that, 
A person, because works don't save us, a person can believe in Jesus one moment, and then in the very next moment, they could, they could blaspheme his name with the most horrible blasphemies imaginable. I said, well, that, that is not right. You know? Of course, Christians are capable of terrible sin, but for a person one moment to, to, to recognize Jesus Christ as Lord because God has allowed them to do that, he has, he has regenerated them, as we talked about a few weeks ago, given them new life. And so a person like that who has genuine life, to tell that person if they blaspheme the name of Jesus, oh, you're okay, you pray to prayer, that, that cannot be right. And then he said not only, not only all that, he said you don't even need to believe in the resurrection to be saved, you just need to believe in the name Jesus. I said, but that's, that's not what Scripture tells us. We said that, I realized, okay, this isn't just some place we need to leave long term. This is a place that even though I, I love these people dearly, this is, this is a place we're going to need to leave more quickly. And then God, by his grace, brought us to the promised land, uh, central Illinois, right? You know, It's a beautiful place, beautiful place. Now, I, I believe the people who are part of that church, they believe that Jesus is Lord. They they believe in the resurrection. They don't blaspheme his name, but, but they're, they're trying to do a good thing to emphasize that we're saved apart from works, but they're really misunderstanding the gospel message. The gospel message calls us to recognize who Jesus Christ is. You, you can't place your faith in someone you don't understand who he is. The gospel calls us to recognize who Jesus Christ is and why he can offer us salvation and then to turn from whatever self-sufficiency we were pursuing, the dead works, the writer of Hebrews calls them, and turn, repent, and place our faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel message. And there are so many aspects of the text this morning that we could focus on. But what I want us to focus on as we talk about this reality that the gospel converts, I want us to look at the life of Saul, also called Paul, and I want us to see how as he believes the gospel, his relationship to Jesus Christ, and specifically the lordship of Jesus Christ, changes dramatically, changes radically. In fact, here's the main idea that I want us to, to talk about this morning. One of the most noticeable fruits of genuine conversion in a person's life is walking in obedience to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Works do not save us. But a person who has been genuinely converted, a person who has received the, the new life of God within them, is going to be a person who has recognized the lordship of Jesus Christ and now is, is walking in obedience to that lordship. That's one of the most noticeable things we're going to need to see in a person who is a genuine believer. And, and my hope, first of all, for those of us who are already Christians, my hope is that we talk about the lordship of Jesus Christ this morning and your hearts are encouraged and convicted and say, okay, where are the areas of my life that I have been clinging to, to lordship of and, and where do I need to repent? And for those of you who are not believers, that you would encounter the lordship of Jesus Christ, recognize his absolute authority over your life and, and turn, repent of self-sufficiency, of, of being the own, your own Lord and recognize that salvation is only found in him and his free offer of eternal life and you would trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning. Let's, let's talk here about the gospel then. Number one, the first thing that I want us to think about is we talk about the gospel and it's, it's converting power. The gospel confronts enemies of Christ. The gospel message comes to those of us who are 
not recognizing the lordship of Christ, but are in fact his enemies. Here's how the text begins. Remember, and look at the text with me then, if you would. We've come to the end of chapter 8, and there's Philip, and it's continued to talk about his ministry, how he goes to Caesarea. And at the beginning of chapter 8, Luke had been telling us about Saul, and now, at the beginning of chapter 9, he returns to Saul. He says, but Saul, and remember who Saul is. Saul was a, a person probably born around 5 A.D. or so. He trained under Gamaliel, the famous Pharisee, and he was a rabid Pharisee and a rabid persecutor of the church. When he's in his late 20s, early 30s, he's there at the stoning of Stephen. He's the one that they lay their coats at as they stone Stephen at the end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8. He's engaged in persecution. And what is he doing now as he begins to be introduced again in chapter 9. Well, he is still aggressively pursuing the church. In fact, notice how aggressive he is. Listen to how Luke describes him. He says Luke, he's, Luke says that Paul is still breathing threats and murders. So this, this obsession with eradicating these followers of Christ still consumes him. And he, he desires to, to, to destroy these followers and we also see his, his vehemence in, in his aggression in how far he's willing to go. He goes to the high priest and he gets letters to take to the synagogues in Damascus. Damascus is some 135 miles away. So he's not content with eradicating this sect in Jerusalem. He wants to go to other synagogues as well and make sure that, that they will join him in this persecution of these followers. Damascus, some six days away, becomes the, the target that Paul has in his crosshairs. Then notice also his aggression and who he's going after. It's not just the men that he's attacking. It says that he's going after men and women. Saul is intent on destroying these followers of Jesus. Now, why? What's Paul's deal, right? Why is he so worked up over these followers of Christ? Well, there's a couple interesting things that this text tells us about these early followers of Christ. In verse 1, it says that he's breathing threats and murders against disciples of the Lord. So it's a group of people who recognize the lordship of Jesus and their disciples. A disciple is one who is following after someone. And, and notice also something very interesting in verse 2. It says that he's asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to what? What's, what's that phrase? The, the way. The way. It's kind of an interesting phrase to describe followers of Christ. You notice what word I don't think I've used yet this morning in, in reference? or the, You notice what word we've not seen used in the book of Acts to this point? We've, we've not seen the word Christian used to describe followers of Christ yet in the book of Acts. Isn't that interesting? We're not going to see that until chapter 11, I think it is. And, and even then, it's kind of like other people call this group Christians. How do the Christians refer to themselves? In Paul's letters, he talks about people who are in Christ, in him. But here in the book of Acts, oftentimes, 
Christians are called followers of the way, people who follow the way of Christ, the way. Paul will be talking to the Jews, for example, in Acts chapter 22, and he says, I persecuted this way, the way to death. The way. What does the way make you think of? Some of you kids, maybe. Have you already, have, some of you already been thinking of a TV show? Uh, the, the show with Baby Yoda in it, The Mandalorian. You know, there's, there's, for those of you who don't have young kids who are into uh, the Star Wars universe, there's, I'm, I'm seeing some head nods, like so, a kid just woke up. Mandalorian, go on. Um, <laughs> you know? Well, you know, in, the, in, this, in this TV show, Star Wars universe, The Mandalorian, The Mandalorian is this character who follows what he calls the way, and the Mandalorian will talk to another Mandalorian and they'll say, this is the way, this is the way, this is the way. And this is the way refers to this, this code of life that they have, this, this legalistic, ritualistic way of life that they have. They, they're followers of the way. This is the way. This is how we have to live, which apparently includes not taking off your helmet, uh, which sounds, uh, in the age of COVID, I, I, it sounds very unpleasant, right? Um, but they, there's, no one can see their face. This is the way. This is how we live as Mandalorians. Now, that's not exactly what they mean as Christians, talking about the way. But just like in that, in that show, the way refers to someone who's committed to a certain manner of life. Christians are those who are committed to the way, to, toward a, a way of living. Our lives are no longer defined by our own individual whims and preferences. Our lives are defined by adherence to the way. And the way is not some legalistic set of rules that we follow. It's a relationship with our Lord, with Jesus Christ. Those of us who are Christians are followers of the way. And Saul does not like this. He is vehemently opposed to these people who are living their lives in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 1, he would say, you remember, you've heard how I used to be, my former life in Judaism. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He says, I, was, I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. Saul has his own way, and Christianity represents an attack on his way. And here's what I want you to understand, brothers and sisters. Anyone who is not in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ has a way that is in opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ and is an enemy of the Lord because they are not recognizing his absolute and complete lordship. Some people are, are openly enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people believe that Christianity is a disease and the world would be better off without Christianity. And so they're very openly, vehemently opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his followers. Other people are more subtle in their opposition to Christianity. Maybe some people wouldn't even know that they're in opposition to Christianity. They say, you know what, you Christians, you can do your thing, we'll do our thing. Uh, live and let live, but, but understand this. Any of us who are not in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ are his enemies. Roman 1 talks about how we suppress our knowledge of the, of the Lord, our knowledge of who God is. Roman 5, Romans 5 describes us as enemies before coming to Christ. We were his enemies when Christ died for us. There's a... There's a um, 
old, old uh, Christian comedy sketch group called Isaac Air Freight. And I'm guessing most of you are too young to have heard of Isaac Air Freight. Um, I had an old cassette tape of Isaac Air Freight, and, and now I'm guessing some of you are too young to know what a cassette tape is too, uh, that, that I used to listen to. And they, they were just kind of these, these, these funny Christian comedians. And there's this one skit that they had with a character named King Me. And, and King Me sat on his throne. It was supposed to represent each of us before coming to Christ. And King Me reigned in his, in his little kingdom of his life. And one day, King of Kings came to King Me. And King of Kings, of course, is to represent Jesus Christ, who reigns over all kings. And so King of Kings came to King Me and called upon King Me to get off his throne and allow the King of Kings to sit on his throne. And eventually, King Me does that. Uh, but he, he does so very unwillingly at, at times as he's tempted to get back on his throne. And I remember there's this one part of the sketch where King Me is, is he has this hobby of creating his own little thrones. And a King of Kings comes in and asks him what, asks him what he's doing. He says, oh, just, just my hobby. Don't worry about it. What's your hobby? Well, I'm just making these little thrones. And King of Kings examines the thrones. What are your little thrones? And they're the, the thrones of music, of pleasure, wisdom, habits, spare time. And then the King of Kings finds this, this little throne called the Queen. Like the, and, and King of Kings says, what are you, what are you doing? He says, well, I, want, I, want to pick, I want to pick my own queen. And King of Kings tells him, well, let me be in charge of that. He says, listen, King of Kings, you don't know my type. i got to play the field, you know. We are constantly, even after we come to Christ, tempted to live as enemies of Christ, to create our own thrones. And I, I want you to just take a moment and recognize this temptation to be our own Lord. I, I want you to say, okay, what, what, am I, what am I tempted to reign over in my own life? Maybe it's my, my purpose or my circumstances. Maybe I want to be Lord of my, my finances. I want to be Lord of my family. I want to be Lord of relationships. I want to be Lord of morality to recognize the gospel confronts enemies of Christ. It confronts those who refuse to submit to his lordship. And then here's the second thing I want you to see. The gospel, as it confronts enemies of Christ, the gospel demands submission to the lordship of Christ. Again, we're going to look at this story multiple times and from multiple angles as we go through the book of Acts, and so we're not going to touch on every detail this morning, but I want you to notice a couple things about Christ's lordship in this encounter with Saul. Number one, notice Christ's lordship manifested this way. Christ's lordship, number one, is grounded in, in his absolute power. There is no realm over which Jesus Christ does not have complete and total authority. It's this amazing picture, isn't it, here, of Saul has, is going into Damascus, and he's got the authority from the chief priest to, to go in and to, uh, to, to bind followers of Christ. And as he begins this journey into Damascus, immediately... Saul is stopped dead in his tracks by the Lord that he's going to persecute. Saul, Saul, says the Lord, why are you persecuting me? And, and notice there too, by the way, 
Isn't that beautiful? As, as Saul persecutes the church, Jesus says, you're persecuting me. As, as you and I undergo persecution, opposition of our faith, it's actually the, the Lord identifies with us so deeply that it's the Lord himself being persecuted. Secondly, notice this. Christ's lordship is, is absolute in its extent. As you go to verses 5 through 9, Saul falls down. He's, he's completely helpless before the Lord. And, and he says, who are you? I don't, I don't even know who you are. And the Lord says, I'm, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then notice, as you go from verse 5 to verse 6, notice what doesn't take place. The Lord doesn't say, uh, I'm the Lord whom you're persecuting. Now, there's some, I want to run some things by you. I've got a plan. I want to workshop it with you a little bit, see what you think, your thoughts and opinions, and, and maybe brainstorm a little bit with you and see what you think. No, the Lord is, is absolute in, in his authority over Saul. He says, look, this is, this is what you're to do. Verse 6, get up, enter the city, and then I'll tell you more. Then I'll tell you what you're to do next. And Saul does that. And he enters into Damascus. Remember, his plan was to enter into Damascus as this authoritative figure who was going to bind the followers of Jesus. And, and notice how he enters Damascus instead, completely unable to see and being led by people. He, he was planning on entering powerful, and instead he enters powerless. We also see, number three, Christ's lordship is exercised in kindness and I want you to see this interaction with Ananias that the Lord has. It's clear that the Lord is absolute Lord, and yet at the same time, there's a gentleness in this conversation he has with Ananias. Ananias is already in Damascus. He's a disciple there, and the Lord speaks to him in a vision and tells him, go to the street, called straight, house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. He's praying. He's seeing you in a vision. Come to lay hands on him, and that's what I want you to do. And what does Ananias say? Yeah, I've, I'm familiar with his work. You know, I, I know who you're talking about. And in fact, just kind of FYI, Lord, he's come here with the authority to, to bind people like me, followers, those who confess your name. He's, he has the authority to, to bind us and lead us back to Jerusalem. And just to be clear, instead of letting him find me, you want me to go to him. And the Lord is, says, yeah, that's, that's the plan. The Lord has a plan. He's authoritative. And yet, in his interaction with Ananias, there's, there's a gentleness. There's a, there's a recognition that he's not a, a despot, but this is part of, of God's plan for both Ananias and Saul. The Lord exercises this lordship within the context of relationship. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks as well. The fourth thing I want you to see is this. Christ's lordship is pursuing a purpose. There's a purpose behind the lordship of, of Christ. And that purpose is not the establishment of our kingdom, but the establishment of, of his. He says, look, I've, I've chosen him. He's my instrument. And I, I have a plan. He's going to be my chosen instrument and will suffer for my name. I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. He's going to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And that's enough for Ananias. 
He goes to Saul, he calls him brother, and Saul is integrated into the family of God. Baptized. Christ's lordship pursues a a purpose. The gospel confronts those who are enemies and it, it calls them into submission of his lordship. I was reading uh, John Frame's Systematic Theology this, this last week. It's kind of interesting. John Frame wrote this really big book. It's this 1,200-page Systematic Theology and just a, a, a beautiful, a lot of just beautiful phrases in there. And the, it, He talks in the second chapter about what theme he's going to use to kind of organize this, this big book of theology. He says that the theme that I'm going to use is the Lordship of Christ. The Lordship of God, God's absolute authority. He says many theologians and, and people in the church today don't like to talk about God being authoritative. They believe that to talk about God being authoritative implies that he has possession over people. To which frame is like, exactly, right? Exactly, we're just the, the sheep of his pasture, right? Jesus would say this in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to do? It's absolutely essential that a person who's at, who has really recognized Jesus Christ as Lord, as is, is a follower of him, understands his lordship. Jesus is described this way in Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is absolute lordship. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so the gospel calls us to recognize and believe his authority. Listen to this, Isaiah 57. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up. Listen how it describes God. The God who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. But listen to what else it says. So here's God, a God who inhabits eternity, a phrase I can't even begin to understand and comprehend the enormity of. A God who inhabits the high place, who also says this, a God who is also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. Frame says this, John Frame says this, I confess to being rather perplexed about the recent controversy in evangelical circles over lordship salvation. The question concerns whether confessing the lordship of Christ is necessary at the beginning of the Christian life or whether one can confess the lordship of Jesus Christ later. He says, how how can that be? The lordship of Jesus is absolutely fundamental to the preaching of the gospel. It's inconceivable that anyone could respond appropriately to the gospel without confessing from the heart that Jesus is Lord. And of course, that profession will not be perfect. Of course, we're going to struggle with sin. But a person who has genuinely come to the Lord Jesus Christ must recognize who he is, that he's Lord, that he has the ability, the authority, the only one who has authority to offer the gift of salvation. Saints, 
please understand the God that I'm putting before you today to worship. The God that I'm putting before you today is, is not a God who comes to you with his, his hat in his hand and said, please, 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 will you be my friend? The God that I'm putting before you today to worship isn't asking your opinion about, well, what do you think is, is right or wrong? The God that I'm putting before you today to worship doesn't want our excuses about why we won't obey him as Lord. He doesn't want to hear about what our parents did or what our wife does or how terrible our children are or how whatever the myriad of excuse we want to offer. The, the God who comes to us comes to us as a loving but sovereign father who desires to extend his gracious forgiveness to us as we recognize him as our Father, as our, as our, and our Christ as our Lord. To find all good things in him and him alone. Here's the last thing I want to see. The gospel produces disciples of Christ. And again, we're going to talk more about Saul's ministry as we go forward, but a couple of things that I want you to see about his conversion. Number one, notice that his conversion is immediate. His conversion is immediate. We're in verse 20, and he's received the gospel. And it says in verse 20, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. So we begin chapter 8 with him breathing murder and threats against those who would proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. And we end the chapter, we come closer to the end of this, this story of his conversion with him proclaiming Jesus is the Son of God. Conversion is immediate. O immediate. Obedience isn't perfect. Obedience is not going to be immediately um, what it needs to be, but there is going to be an immediate appearance, uh, or there's going to be the obedience will be immediately apparent. Number two, conversion is noticeable. It's noticeable. Again, look at the text, verse 21, all who heard him were amazed. Hey, isn't this the guy that came here to bind people who mention the name Jesus, and here he is proclaiming the name Jesus. This, this is different. Genuine conversion is noticeable. Number three, conversion is radical, and this is what we see in the rest of this, this paragraph. In, in uh, verse 22, Saul increases all the more in strength. He confounded all the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ, and Luke is trun truncating some things. We know that he uh, leaves here in, in some, some portion to go into Arabia. He's going to be gone. So this, this, is, a, this is covering a period of, of three years from, from the beginning of the chapter to the end. And I think it's in verse 22 that he, you know, Luke, Luke kind of passes over some of this by saying um, some days, many days had passed, and he's back in Damascus, and the Jews plot to kill him. So there's, there's this Radically, radical difference in Saul. It's a radically different message. He's part of a radically different community. The community he was a part of, he is now their enemy. The community he was an enemy of, now he is included in, and Barnabas welcomes him as he comes into the church in Jerusalem and welcomes him as a brother. And there's a, a radical different passion, radically different passion that Saul has. He has disciples are protecting him and keeping him from harm. And again, we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. Sometimes we ask the question with our life, um, what does God want me to do? Or we ask God, God, what, what do you want me to do with my life? And I, I don't know about you, 
But, but sometimes when I ask the question, God, what do you want me to do? I actually mean, God, I have a couple of different options for you to choose from. You know? God, um, you can decide, do you want me to be famous because I'm rich or good looking? I mean, it's up to you, God. You choose what, you want, what path you want my life to take. Um, I, don't, I don't care how you want me to be famous. My life is in your hands, right? We do that, we do that in so many different areas of our life. We're really asking God, what do you want, what do you want, what do you want to help me do? I want you to ask yourself, what is true, what does true submission to Jesus Christ as Lord mean for me this morning? In fact, I, I would encourage you to surrender your life anew to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Even the word surrender, I mean, he recognize his lordship, right? He doesn't need you to surrender. He's already in charge. I would encourage you to, to, to recognize his lordship this morning. Maybe there's an area of obedience. Maybe there's a, a throne that you've crafted for yourself that you are clinging to. Ask the Lord to reveal that to you this morning and, and, and turn over lordship of that area of your life to him. Maybe it's a relationship Maybe it's an area of sin. Maybe it's an area of, of, of gospel proclamation. I appreciated Chuck sharing with us this morning the evangelistic ministry, discipleship ministry that he's engaged in there. Maybe, maybe there's an evangelistic relationship that God has called you to embark on that you've been resisting. Maybe you've just been resisting evangelism in general. And God is calling you to have a renewed focus to proclaiming him as Lord of your life. Surrender your life anew to Christ this morning as you recognize his lordship. One of the most noticeable fruits of genuine conversion is walking in obedience to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we recognize your great authority this morning. We recognize that you are the, the Lord over all creation. And I, I would ask that you would even just in, in this moment reveal to us and the areas, perhaps one or two in particular, in which we have, we have clung to our own sinful lordship. Reveal that to us even now in just this, this moment of silence. Father, for those of us who are in you, for those of us who are followers of the way, we confess this as sin. And we pray that we would recognize anew your authority as a loving Father. We would turn from sin, turn afresh in faith to you. And through the work of your Holy Spirit, you would equip us to walk in obedience to you. We love you. We love walking in obedience to you because we are your children. We desire to please you. We know that as we walk in obedience to you, we don't get out of debt, our great debt to you. We become deeper and deeper, more joyfully in debt to you and your grace in providing us the means of obedience. We confess your son, Jesus, and we pray this in his name this morning. Amen. Amen.